Hello listeners, welcome back to Creative Health Podcast. This is your regular fix of stories, ideas and information about why being creative is important in supporting a good quality of life. I'm your host, Laura Bailey. My guest today is Natasha Boardman-Steer. Natasha is a creative practitioner specialising in health, well-being and community engagement. She founded her organisation CreatorBot in 2010 to provide opportunities for creativity of all kinds to support people to feel better about themselves and where they live. Natasha brings lived experience to the work she does and is really knowledgeable and articulate about creative health in community settings and in person-centred healthcare, along with the challenges for freelancers and small organisations. She also shared some of her lived experience of creativity supporting her own health conditions. She's funny, infectious and a joy to spend time with. Enjoy! Hi Natasha, welcome to Creative Health Podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Really glad to be here. Very excited to speak to you. Oh, you're really welcome. I'm looking forward to having a chat with you. I think you've got a lot of really interesting experience that other people will be able to learn from and will find inspiring. So thank you so much. So you describe yourself, Natasha, as a socially engaged creative practitioner. What does that mean? And do you ever describe yourself as an artist? And is there a difference between those things? So the reason I added socially engaged creative practitioner to it was because I feel like I work so closely with communities that I really start to understand the complex needs of people in the local community and kind of those nitty gritty things that might be impacting their well-being. So it isn't tokenistic. I really do make sure that they're heard in what I do. So that's why I added socially engaged to being a creative practitioner. And I do call myself an artist, but it does depend on what I'm doing because I feel that often as an artist, that's more about what's going on in my own head and what I might be expressing myself. Whereas if I'm a creative practitioner, often that would be responding to someone else's thoughts and feelings or I might be assisting them to create. And often that's where I find myself. I'm often using my creative abilities to help other people to be creative. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction, actually. I don't know whether I've ever heard anybody talk about it like that before. That might be because I've never asked anybody that before. But that's a really good distinction. It makes sense. And in your work, I've read that you use the word creativity to include quite a wide range of things. So not just art, but also things like food and gardening and nature and sort of improving people's environments, which I really love. Why did you decide that that was your definition rather than, say, Arts Council's definition of, you know, what they fund, what they consider creativity? I think it's really interesting, actually, because um, Arts Council are more and more starting to lean towards that as well, which is absolutely brilliant. I think the more conversations I have with the Arts Council, the more 
they're accepting that especially cooking for instance and food is a part of that it brings people together and obviously now the environmental side of it that that's having to come into it so then it does involve things like green spaces they're obviously working with julie's bicycle who are you know specialize in kind of engaging in the environment and green spaces so it is there but it's just sometimes we don't put it down to being specifically actually is this actually just about cooking a meal growing your own food tidying your garden maybe with others or looking after a community garden and what's interesting is that across the world it does seem that that is developing more and I think it's about unpicking what does the word creativity mean and that is personal (laughs) like everything we you know it's so personal but often it can be an expression of self and so to have an expression of self that would definitely be seen in flavors and cooking and things that you like and things you might think other people might like and you're helping them to feel better you might be healing with food as well and the same with if you're growing your own food that's going right back to the beginning of where that food has come from and flowers are colourful, so you want to grow your own flowers because they're so colourful. I have a very good friend who's also an artist, Zara Carpenter, who works with flowers all the time. She dries them out. She includes them in her artwork. So that then becomes creative. So it, it is, it's very expensive, isn't it, when you start unpicking it from that point of view. Just the clothes you wear each day is a creative expression. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. There is creativity in everything that we do. Yeah. Like you say, from the clothes that we choose to wear, from the music that is the soundtrack of our lives, to just being in amazing spaces can make you feel quite creative or inspired. So I love the breadth of it. And it's something that I'm quite passionate about in terms of helping other people understand that being creative doesn't mean that you have to be an amazing painter or a highly skilled and trained ballet dancer or something I mean obviously there's many other examples but do you know what I mean it's just more about just having a go and embracing creativity and lots of things and the cooking side of it I love I think that's so important because that also connects to your culture as well doesn't it and enables you to express yourself it's about your identity where you come from your family connecting as well as sort of the creativity of making food so I love that I love that that's your definition and it's not even really a definition is it no, it's it's about celebration of life, isn't it? And and all of those things are what bring colour to life, and that's what creativity is about. What are what makes life zesty, you know, and interesting? It is all those things. It is growing your own food and and, and cooking and eating together and coming together and being together as a community. And like you say, then that embraces many different cultures and ideas so it's bringing together of ideas yeah and your practice specializes in things like mental health substance misuse rehabilitation of offenders and youth engagement and I want to come on to those things and the work that you've done in those contexts but I'm interested to know a bit about your journey to become a creative practitioner or an artist Mm -hmm. 
where did it begin for you? Were you creative as a child? Were you creative in school? Is that something you studied in school, out of school? So I'm a proper Blue Peter child for sure. <laughs> so that, I feel like that's where it all began. <laughs> so yeah, I really, I feel like Blue Peter was very inspirational to me. That, that creativity, the cooking, the crafting, there we go. We kind of see it all yeah. in everything that I do. So that was very influential on me. And I really loved drawing. I loved colouring. I had a lot of knockbacks with drawing. There's some things that really stood out in my mind with that. So I was raised in a very controlling religion and this led to me being home educated. I never went to school. Right. And so access to studying art is very complicated if you're home educated because they kind of want you to be doing coursework based work for your art GCSEs. So we did explore those options, but it just wasn't viable. I think I looked at doing photography but it was it was just too complicated. So I just concentrated on getting my basic maths and English and I done geography and my sciences. And I entered competitions all the time. I was always writing, writing poems. I actually I found something that I wrote when I was about 14, 15 that was about how there should be more youth services in the area, specifically that are creative and help young people to engage in creativity oh, wow. and I'd, I'd completely forgotten about this and I found it a few years ago and I was like oh okay this is clearly built into me as a person and my beliefs yeah and I think those setbacks with not being able to do certain things obviously was so frustrating and when you're home educated um you can say that you don't want like the national curriculum to come and check on you like parents can make that decision but my parents made the decision to let them come and check on me which I actually enjoyed because I had nothing to like compare to because I didn't have any peers to compare my abilities to so when they came and they told me I was doing really well I was like oh okay I'm doing okay But I do remember once having this drawing and I'd rubbed out parts of it and redone it. And I was really trying to perfect it. And um, it was actually just copying an image from a magazine. But the guy that came was like, why did you rub it out? Why didn't you start again? I was so offended. I was just, I was was (laughs) trying so hard to perfect this piece. And that actually is a core memory, as they say, where it's kind of like, but creativity should just be about playing and encouragement. And there isn't enough of that, of just saying, you're clearly creative. Like, keep going. You're doing great. Thumbs up. And I speak to so many people that say that art teachers had said to them, you'll never amount to anything, don't bother drawing, etc. But at the time, at the age of 15, you could go into adult education centres, would you believe? Even though you weren't an adult, which was actually amazing for me. So at 15, I went to the adult education centre and I studied script writing, TV, radio and film. Right. And I wrote, yeah, I started writing scripts. And it was it's brilliant because, again, I had previously I'd had no form of reference for my abilities apart from what I was reading and writing and thinking, OK, I feel like I'm matching up to what I'm maybe reading. And um, I've done really well, done really, really well in that course. And the tutor was so supportive. Everyone there was really supportive of me. And um I passed all of my GCSEs. I've done better in some than others, but the grades weren't quite well enough for me to get into college. Not quite. I really wanted to do media studies. 
my parents did not want me to do media studies, of course, because <laughs> of the media and the, what they presumed the media to be. And so rather than it being about what I wanted to do, there was this huge fear over studying media. I wanted it to be about my own swing of it. And um, so I rebelled. <laughs> and uh, the tutor for the course really seemed to want to support me. And he found out that this adult ed course that I'd done was in itself like an, a certain amount of credits and was the equivalent of like an A-level, I think. And so it meant I was able to get on the course. So I was able, because of the GCSEs I had and um, this adult ed course, I went and studied media. And at the time it included everything. So it included more script writing, but film production, editorial, uh, music industry, everything. So it was a full boot camp <laughs> for, for two years of all the different types of ways you could use media to to be creative and that was kind of how it started amazing and so I just want to go back yeah. if you don't mind a little bit to the home education side mm-hmm. of it so did you have siblings that were being home educated with you and did you see other children who were also being home educated so I had I was the oldest so my brother and sister were also home educated my brother really would struggle with it and then I think by the time my sister was kind of being taught at home I was older at that point so it's mostly me and my brother really that spent that time together I didn't really see any other children in honesty within the religion I did a lot of them went to school though there's a few that were home educated but I was also isolated from them as well so you can see there's a lot of this social isolation that we now that's what we call it loneliness and also you know as a young person the social development side of just being able to watch other children and see how they interact and understand people that was just something that wasn't wasn't there as well as that what I was saying about just we don't want to compare do we but there was no basis of comparison I was just in the dark I had no idea whether I was doing well or not, I had no idea. And my parents were not in that frame of mind to be able to tell me whether I was doing well or not. It was a bit of of indifference. Yeah. But I think there's a difference between comparison and competition. Actually, Mm. I think having, being able to compare so that it gives you some sense of where you're at and maybe also to support your own confidence Mm. by understanding that you're doing well that's I think a good thing yeah but comparing to be competitive is something different Mm. it's interesting because I don't know a huge amount about home education I'm aware that there are quite a lot of children who are home educated but the impression that I get from it in general is that actually a lot of children get to be more creative yes absolutely outside of the kind of school setting but that's down to the parents so their parents take them on day trips to galleries and to libraries and those sorts of things and they go with other groups of kids and they they get to spend more hours being creative doing creative things at home than they would if they were at school but clearly that's not the experience of being home educated that you had no that's it yeah because I um I obviously, again, like I say, I saw that there were other children being home educated within the religion and they would spend their time together. So I was, again, isolated from them. So it just took a, another degree of isolation within that. And 
you're absolutely right. I've worked with home ed families in Medway, which is primarily where I work, and 100% they're all together, they're spending time together, they go to places together, and so the children are socialising together. And that is just, we did go out as families, definitely, like you say, went to museums and galleries and yeah and I it brought things to life more which you don't get in the school and I think that's amazing you know bringing history to life and the fact that I could mess around in the kitchen and get a cookbook out and just go for it I had more time to do that because I wasn't in school all day there's definitely that side of it so it can be absolutely incredible and especially for young people that are quite gifted I think it's an incredible way to then help them in the direction of the subjects that they absolutely adore and for them to succeed in life it's a great way to do it which you know it just can't be supported can it in a standard education system no so home education can be absolutely amazing yeah but in your instance I guess yeah it kind of exacerbated feelings of loneliness and social isolation which isn't ideal and so how did you deal with that did you deal with that really once you kind of started doing further education yeah felt like a waiting game I think the whole thing just felt like waiting and waiting and waiting and just being like and I can see now why I wanted to grow up so quickly because I was like I can't wait to be able to make my decisions and just go and do those things and obviously there are some young people that have it even worse I've worked with young people that are still being financially controlled even when they are past 16 past 18 their finances aren't their own they get told they're not allowed to work it's awful but fortunately I was maybe I was too strong-willed <laughs> but I went out and I you know I had my dad did support me to get a Saturday job which was in a camera shop which was brilliant so then I was around adults which was fine and I was able to understand how conversations worked <laughs> yeah in a kind of that setting and also to understand that it took a long time I think to understand that. Um, people might say things that offend you and that that can be okay and you can move on and you know and I can say things that can offend others <laughs> it's a big one as well I remember talking about somebody saying I don't know how to be tactful I remember saying that I just don't <laughs> I don't know how to be tactful because I didn't have any concept of someone just being like you can't say that that's rude none of that had happened so I had to learn the hard way but um I'd done really really well in college and adapted to it really well and again the tutors they had you know they've seen it before haven't they with young people with all different abilities different backgrounds and yeah I just I'm so thankful to my tutors that I had in college really yeah having one person a tutor, a teacher, a mentor can make a huge difference, can't it, in young people's lives or adults' lives, but certainly in young people's lives. I'm always quite envious of people who say they had this one amazing teacher and they changed my life because I don't remember having any teachers like that at all, frankly. But anyway. Oh, that's really rubbish. Yeah. (laughs) So, So after you studied media, what happened after that? Well, I wasn't allowed to go to university. So that was one thing that I just couldn't rebel on. It was just uh, because also the whole framework of my life had been set up as you 100% can't ever do that. Doing media studies, we've kind of bent the rules here, but that's a big no-no. So there was no, that wasn't an option. Um, not even to, it's annoying really, because I feel like I could have gone to UCA 
because that wouldn't have been far really on the bus for me to have got to but for some reason it was just because it was called a university it was just a big no so I went straight into work I managed to get a job for I think it's crazy really because I feel like if you were to choose dangerous places I've gone straight into working I went to work for a newspaper I think I would have been safer at university than working in advertising sales but anyway yeah I worked for Archant newspapers in Sidcup and worked in advertising again struggled with that peer-to-peer kind of relationships but the kind of people running the ship were amazing they were supportive of sort of a young person coming into the team they wanted to help me succeed which I feel really fortunate about because I think a lot of companies don't have that at all so that was really fortunate but it just didn't work out I obviously looking back now I was a very unusual young person like there's just certain things that I wasn't aware of and also it isn't the best environment. I wasn't in a creative environment. So I got on really well with the editorial team at the newspaper and that's where I wanted to end up. But it was going to take time and I couldn't drive. Really needed to be able to drive to be either like a rep or in a journalist at that time because you'd drive out, wouldn't you? That <laughs> used to be. People don't do that anymore. But used to go and drive out and speak to people. So I just couldn't stick it out. So what happened, going back to lived experience here, is on a Sunday, I just started to get terrible stomach pain. Didn't really understand why. Mm-hmm. And then just got worse and worse and worse and worse every Sunday. And I was like, oh, I didn't think this is affecting me, but it is. <laughs> I went to the doctor and he was like, we're going to sign you off of work. You've got IBS. This is clearly stress related. And I just started to feel better knowing that I wasn't going to work. So kind of just try to move myself into situations where I was going to be treated better the newspaper I think they recognized that it was a bad environment so what what can you do so they, they kind of knew I think they felt really bad about it but I, it's a very difficult complex situation so um I ended up just doing cleaning work up the road from where I lived because I was still with my parents at the time and I then started to make So I started to sew and I started to collage and I started to make bags and jewellery and sell it and just started to then delve into exploring how can you make money through creativity and how does that side of things work and develop myself really as a person. And so fast forward a little while and you set up your business CreatorBot in 2010. And was the focus of that business always intended to be around health and well-being from the start? Or did that evolve in response to a need that you saw through the work? Yeah, it naturally evolved because originally it was because there was a huge gap, which probably still is, everyone says there is, around promoting what's going on and there not being one place to find it. I just think that's going to be a story I hear for the rest of eternity. (laughs) But um, yeah, there was a real, like people weren't interconnecting with each other. People didn't know each other. And I think (laughs) unbeknown to, I guess, my parents that I actually have a real interest in social networks (laughs) maybe that's come out of being isolated I just don't oh I don't think we'll ever know yeah but I just find it fascinating I I enjoy connecting people to each other so 
originally I was promoting events on there that was happening in Medway and Kent and, and the South East actually and interviewing artists and so I got to know some local creatives and know their stories and then I guess seeing about stuff that was happening locally and what wasn't and what people wanted I started to develop my own way of working started to put on film screenings that were quite inspirational for the local community people came along I was like oh <laughs> oh. <laughs> actually in college I did organize I was part of the student union and um is it, I don't know if they call them presidents or whatever but I'd organized like a gig and it had gone terribly wrong it had gone so badly wrong. <laughs> I'd sold tickets I was like yes I sold tickets but I didn't organize a PA so there was no no way of making the band turned up I'd done a great deal I was going to do music video for them and they were going to do the student union gig but there's no PA, so they couldn't be heard. So it had to be cancelled. <laughs> yeah, so for, I was like resting for a while. of like, okay, I'm not going to do events. But I plucked up the courage again. And then I had the support of a local co-working space and um, was able to like, you know, the projectors there, all the kits there. Okay, we're doing film screenings. And then I organised like a screen printing workshop in that co-working space. And like I say, people were coming and I was like, okay, I'm starting to notice where these gaps are. People are enjoying this. They're saying it's really good for them they feel really good after it and that made me feel good that they were feeling good and yeah it just developed from there and then people started to ask me about doing workshops I had been involved in like a breakfast club when I was after the cleaning work I guess I was obviously looking out for additional work and I would be a standing caretaker and then do breakfast clubs so I started to get the youth experience so really had like my DBS and everything and things just started to match up connect with people the universe aligned all of that stuff meeting the right people at the right time and they were like you you could do this you could do that there's that support there yeah so yeah just involved into being a provision of its own and was this primarily in Chatham in Medway yeah in Medway as a whole it's such a small area really so yeah Rochester Chatham Gillingham yeah it's great because from a perspective of looking at outcomes it means that you can actually record that and see you get to know real people yeah and their stories yes so it's really nice and you're part of that community too mm. so yeah you're embedded yeah and did this work lead directly to being commissioned by different health and social care organizations charities community organizations yeah, so there would either be, obviously, grants being awarded that I would then apply for with a response of what I was going to offer. Charities would also get to hear about what I was doing and approach me and say, I think maybe you could do something for us. And people would recommend me. There was a lot of word of mouth. It's made, it has mainly been word of mouth and people just getting to know what I do and that I make sure it's really safe. I think that's the most important thing, that what I do is really safe. Then, yeah, it's led to then me having to, <laughs> the most recent one in the last few years has then been starting to look at actual proper, you know, procurement and applying for tenders, which is a whole new world. But fortunately, somehow, I have managed to go through the maze of <laughs> procurement and <laughs> worked out how to then have those contracts and that and it's joint because the people awarding those contracts are also ready to work with me and that's 
that's the biggie, isn't it? As we know, <laughs> are they ready to work with like sole traders, creative, small businesses? Not always. They don't know if they feel like that could be risky, but sometimes it might actually be the safest option. Yeah, I mean, so this is something I think we're going to pick up on later in the conversation. But let's talk about this now, because we're talking about public sector procurement, essentially. So like local councils, or I guess it could be the NHS, procuring community based services, or health and social care based services, public health. And often, they are going to, and historically going to quite large institutions, because the way that the procurement process works is very onerous and very prohibitive for smaller organizations and almost impossible for freelancers to do. So the challenge has been, and it's an ongoing challenge, is how can those procurement processes be adjusted so that it makes it possible for smaller organizations to be able to win some of the work and therefore deliver some of those services and also to include sectors like the creative sector, artists, cultural professionals who can contribute a huge amount with their talents and skills. And we know, and this is the Creative Health Podcast, so you know this is what it's all about. It's about the value that is held in the creative sector and in people being creative towards improving their health and well-being and quality of life. But like you've alluded to, it's been really difficult to navigate those really complex public sector processes. Do you think that there has been improvement in the processes in the last couple of years or so in order to enable creative organisations or smaller organisations to get involved and win some of that work? And do you think that the people commissioning the work are starting to understand the value of creativity? Hmm. So the value, I think, unfortunately, doesn't always come from the commissioners. It again comes from the people on the ground seeing the work being done and then they go back to the commissioners and they say, this has worked really well. And then the commissioners might not have ever seen it or understand it. So that's still complicated, I think. So it just depends who are on the board, who those commissioners might be, their past experience their lived experience as well. So I think it's very specific to the organisation. I think there's still so much pushback in terms of commissioning, as we can see, because the the voluntary sector is still struggling and we have all this social prescribing and then where's the funding behind it? The biggest thing that seems to be the there's so much fear. I think there's fear around the financial side of it, as if, like, I'm going to go and run off with the money and it's just like and not do what I've said I'm going to do you know you have a contract and that's why the contract's there yes and there's no track record of this happening okay there's the situations where there's been poor performance but what you do about that is you support that person to then succeed and that is not just in with with small organization right there's loads of (laughs) examples of humongous organizations having terrible safeguarding in place we only need to look in the press to see that so surely in a smaller organization with less staff you can actually control that situation better and make sure the safeguarding is 
spot on and that the staff are looked after and that everyone is doing really well and that you're not completely overrun with all the work there is a real way of doing it but there is still so much pushback and fear and I think if there was to be one big change with it to make it easier it would be that you would not be expected to come up with every single document in the most perfect way before you won the contract I don't understand why you must have all these things in place and spend all this time doing all of those things that not, might not be relevant until you run the contract. Well, they won't be relevant because let's assume you'd have them in place if you needed them. But they want you to have modern day slavery <laughs> policy in place because that's the contract and you have no need for that unless you win this contract. It should be a case of when you win the contract, we will give you two months to get these documents in place. You must have these in place before you start delivering your provision. You're not being paid to do that. And that's the thing in the big organisations, there's people being staffed and employed to maybe put those documents in place so they're being paid. That's not there with a small business because they haven't won the contract yet. So that would be the biggest thing to happen, I think, because a lot of the time it's, um, let's be honest, a lot of the time these are policies which there are general templates for. But you want to make them good for your own organisation and you want to have time to do that. But we're also stretched that that becomes very difficult. And we know we need to share more. We know we need to share those documents more, but they're still bespoke to us and the way we work. And so it still takes time to write them well and to, you know, and to act on them. And I've got a friend who works in health and safety and he always says it's not just about what you write. It's the fact that you're actually doing it. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, the proof is in the pudding, I guess, isn't it? It's about how well you run those services and your duty of care to the people, to the participants, communities who you're working with. And obviously having policies in place gives people some reassurance that you take those things seriously. But yeah, it's not actually until you're delivering the work that people can see that actually you're really genuine about it. Because you're right, there's been many, many cases, and there will be more, where big organisations are given contracts of work because they are perceived to be the safer option or the ones who have got the skills and the resources to be able to deliver the work at scale, I guess, But then catastrophic things have gone wrong because they don't take seriously enough those policies and putting those into practice. And because actually they're so big and so far removed from the communities that they're working with, they don't actually really care. So then you kind of go, well, that backfired, didn't it? You know, (laughs) perhaps if you'd gone with some smaller, more grassroots organisations on the ground who actually really want to make a difference to people's lives then you wouldn't have ended up in that situation yeah exactly yeah it's specific to a community that's the whole point of health research is to look at specific things in those areas and addressing them and um, I think you spoke in one of your other podcasts about kind of almost like a blanket approach do we go with a blanket approach with creativity and and well-being but the truth of it is there's always going to be some people that directly need support to get to say an activity a workshop an intervention and it's so one-to-one this is small scale isn't it 
and people like that will just get lost in big organizations yeah absolutely I think the conversation that you're referring to it was more about trying to get to a point where there is an offer of arts and culture and creativity everywhere and it's given the same status I guess of importance in people's lives than other things are obviously there needs to be bespoke there needs to be a lot of you know what they call people-centered ways of working it was more that arts and culture as an offer into health and social care is still quite niche and it doesn't happen anywhere near as much and the funding doesn't come down into the creative sector to make sure that there is a really wide offer to people. That's, I think, what we were talking about, not to want to offer this kind of like really generic arts service kind of no, at scale. No, no, no. It was more just that like, yeah, you know, there should be opportunities for everyone in every community to yes. engage with creativity in some way. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's where we'd like to get to. Yeah, definitely. And again, that framework of a smaller organisation being appreciated for the, what that can mean and what that that offer is, and then for the commissioners to appreciate that is going to result in the likelihood of more of those types of services being commissioned, isn't it? Because that framework is understood. What does it look like? What is actually the meat and bones of something like this what would it look like and then the commissioner can understand then that helps them to say yes <laughs> yes I get behind that yeah and just this issue of how complicated those procurement processes are definitely needs looking at and I think councils and health funders need to be given the ability to actually just go and I guess bluntly speaking purchase work and services directly from creative sector or local charities and small organizations without them having to go through some really hideous application process which costs them a huge amount of money I think it's too much emphasis on the small organizations having to work really hard just to get the work and you know why can't people come to them and say your work's brilliant can we fund it (laughs) How great would that be? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, these are the things you've got to get in place. But it's really hard, isn't it? Because you also get biased in with that. And so it's kind of worked in that way with some of the work that I've done where they have come to me and said, we really like what you do. You need to put in this kind of application. We really love it, obviously, but you've got to convince the commissioners. So that's usually kind of what happens. But that is, like I said, it it depends on who those commissions are as to whether they really understand it. And so the more that we're talking about arts and culture and the benefits on health and well-being, and that's why I'm just so glad these conversations are happening, it it means that those commissions then understand actually what, what on earth does that mean? What does it look like? And what does high quality look like? What does that actually mean? Are you being real with that what's the reality of it okay so let's talk about some of the work that you've done over the years since starting CreatorBot there's a lot here that we could talk about and we probably can't go through every single 
role that you've ever done so I've picked out a few to ask you about but feel free to tell me about others and you, and you have talked about some of this already so you worked for a period of about four years for Nucleus Arts in Chatham, didn't you? And you ran a number of creative projects and regular sessions with people with a range of different needs and developed some really great partnerships there. Tell us about that work. Yeah, so while I was working like on Creative Art and working with a co-working space, Nucleus Arts approached me. They had something that they wanted to get off the ground for quite a while because they're an art studio space, basically. So they've got lots of art studios. It's all about providing art studios. But the founder of the foundation really wanted there to be some community benefits to the organisation as well. They'd done a few bits and pieces, but never got something completely on its way. So I I went in part-time as their community engagement manager and was able then to be on the ground, getting to know people in the community, applying for funding for specific ages. So young people, home education, of course, I had to, (laughs) and older people that were quite isolated. Yeah, that was really, really successful. Their programs are still running now really well. And that's great. It's been lovely to then move forward and know that that organisation is being really successful they're winning awards for their community engagement programs still keep in touch with David who's now their CEO and yeah it's really lovely to see you know that's what you want isn't it you want to be able to help move things forward and help an organization do that yeah and what kind of things did you witness in terms of the difference that it was making to people's lives well people that never would walk into an art space were walking into a gallery they were going to maybe a workshop they've been to a space in central Chatham you know they, they kind of changes their concept around the area so they might not feel very good about where they live and then they discover this place they connect with new people that also live there they start to feel better about where they live they feel calmer because they've engaged in a creative activity Quite a few of them went on to then, there were some people that went to a session called Younger Art, which for, was for over 55s, which makes me laugh that they considered, that was just the way the funding was. <laughs> and it was like older people over 55. And I'm like, wow, that's rude. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so they uh, would go on to do degrees at the local university. And some of those now I continue to work with because now they're like, okay, I've got my degree. What next? I want to apply for Arts Council funding. Love it. Yeah. Uh, It's just, that's fantastic, isn't it? So good. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And then um, some of the young people that were home educated also obviously gone on to study art at university. Even some of them that just come to sewing workshops, which I'd organised. And I see there was one recently, he's just gone off to study fashion, I think at Liverpool. Amazing. And I'm like, oh. Could just have a little bit, a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of inspiration there could have happened. It's just, yeah, really, really nice to have supported that journey for those people. Yeah, totally. And so you also spent a couple of years running weekly creative works sessions, you've called them, for the Forward Trust within Her Majesty's Prison Service. Yeah. Although it'd be His Majesty's Prison Service now, won't it? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Tell me about this, because prison's a difficult context to work in. So what were you doing and what were the aims of the project? So, yeah, so the Forward Trust were based in Rochester Prison. 
they had a whole program there, which was a six-week program, which was primarily to support people with substance misuse issues because substances do still get into the prison. Rochester prison is mostly drug offences, to be honest, anyway. So, which is it's just so sad, to be honest. It's all men, all uh, men over 18. And their programme would include things like yoga, gym, something called tension release. So it's very holistic. They'd had art and creative writing. They had art in there anyway as a qualification that you can do. But I was part of this programme and I was running printing sessions for them so they could print their own T-shirts. And yeah, we do it over six weeks. And you needed the six weeks because you needed time at the beginning just to get to know them and for them to realise that this was for them. They could be creative. They were terrified a lot of the time. <laughs> Some of them were like, this would be like being back at school. And then there'd be one of them, though, that was really interested and they'd convince the other one that, actually, no, this could be quite fun and that's fine. It's good to be fun. They're in a prison, right? Like, let's pass some time here doing something nice that's good for their well-being. What would happen with that, which was lovely, was that people would then want to come back and do it again. And again, and again, and again, and they want to do more more t-shirts. And uh, unfortunately, what made it... So there's two things that started to make that really hard. So in the end, they decided, because it was so popular, they didn't want people to come back because that was going to take up spaces. I did try to explain that actually it's really beneficial that there was people coming back that then were like a peer mentor to those people that were coming in that were really nervous. And then, yeah, that kind of happened. And then COVID happened. So and everything got stopped in the prison for a long time like only recently has stuff started to happen again which is just yeah it's not very good when you're talking about rehabilitation is it but yeah really rewarding very hard work but just really great to see them start to think about their own creativity and get lost in that get into flow with their creativity yeah and not that we can necessarily get into the detail of it because it's complicated but hopefully contribute towards their rehabilitation as well yeah definitely because then some of them were thinking about well maybe I could run a printing business you know maybe I could design my own clothes all these ideas and also the thing is is a lot of the reason that people essentially get into dealing drugs it's very complex as to why somebody might end up dealing drugs and and mostly they were dealing actually not always using obviously these people were around using but um often they're really good at business (laughs) they're really smart intelligent people and they want to make money but their understanding of why they need money is complicated maybe they've been brought up in poverty and so they really really feel like money would change their life and improve life and it does improve lives of course but to actually have a quality of life and to spend time with your family is obviously better for your mental well-being not to be constantly stressed that the police are gonna arrest you for the work that you're doing yeah okay thank you for that and you've also worked with people experiencing homelessness as well haven't you how do you think creative engagement supports people who are living in those situations I think it can be really basic, actually. Sometimes it can create a routine for them. So they know that every day on that afternoon, they're going to partake in something creative. They're going to go somewhere and have a cup of tea, have a chat with people and do something for them. Then they start to build up their sense of self-worth. 
and their own ability and you've got obviously people that are homeless and people at a huge risk of homelessness and often people that have been homeless are at risk of being homeless again because of their different complex health needs and realizing that they have a a creative talent is one thing so that can obviously support them to realize that they have worth in terms of creative ideas making things and building up those skills for sure and also just connecting with uh, sometimes a support network so often obviously the, the most successful situations are where that creative activity is happening in a space which provides other things so whether that could be housing advice financial advice access to computers all those types of things can then help them to move forwards as they get to know that space get to know the people there and then they can look at more secure housing volunteering working it's part of integrated care isn't it essentially and um it's part of a whole provision it should be provided as a package for somebody and those are the settings which I've generally worked in right and at the moment you're studying for a degree in health and social care and how are you bringing creativity and art into that so my final module is around um, mental health approaches so is perfect for that so it's looking at holistic approaches to mental well-being and it's come at a really good time with the work that I do with Liberal Kent and Medway and Shore Trust because that's specifically around mental health and supporting mental health and I've been doing that work for a few years and it's always about improving person-centered approach whole person approach and looking at okay (laughs) I'll give you an example somebody comes to my workshop but they got completely lost on the way and when they turn up they're really nervous and actually they just want a cup of tea and to settle and then over time you got to realize that they do have anxiety but actually they've got underlying health issues that haven't been addressed and actually the doctor didn't pick up on this because they had a 10 minute appointment with this person and now you have spent five weeks with that person okay might only be a few hours a week but you've spoken to them on the phone in between you're starting to build up a picture of their health and well-being in general and you're starting to realize hold on hold on (laughs) there's other stuff going on here that needs dressing and studying health and social care has really helped me to appreciate that so much more and then to look at okay so what do we then do do we write a letter to the doctor do we speak to family members to see what other support can be put in place? Do we put a referral in to another provision that's local, that's around health and wellbeing? I'm a Better Medway champion. We have lots of training around health approaches and interventions, things that can support health and wellbeing, whether it's healthy eating or stop smoking. And so, again, those referrals being in place to support that person. So them being creative is... Um, it's just part of that and so fitting yeah fitting that into the the kind of health and social care is about another holistic approach which steps away from medicalization of healthcare. yeah I love this person-centered approach side of things I think it has huge challenges I guess doesn't it in terms of the cost implications of like everybody being able to get a person-centered approach to their recovery or to getting them into a better 
life situation or whatever it is but that does make total sense and I don't think that that's something that a GP alone can offer and that's why we are now in this integrated care partnership model isn't it because actually people need to be able to be supported with their health and well-being from a range of different avenues within their community but having people like you Natasha is going to be really important for this model I think to have somebody who can take the time to have a conversation that is more than just the average GP time to understand what's important to that person as a whole and yeah not just looking at them as a medical problem looking at them as a human being and what are the other things that they need in order to move them forward and I don't know how that can happen but I think that's generally where things are hopefully starting to move or the intention is to try and move them in that direction and then so on that note you've not long joined a a public advisory group called Health Determinants Research Collaboration. This is based in Medway. So tell us what this group's doing and what you're bringing to it. Yeah, so the Health Determinants Research Collaboration is between Medway Council and the University of Kent. And it's about embedding research and then evidence-based approaches to health in Medway. So when we're talking about the voluntary sector providing a a provision locally, we want to make sure that that's based on evidence that there's that requirement and also that what they're doing is specific for that community and need because then that should lead more to that commissioning that we were talking about earlier whereby because we know that in this postcode or this ward is generally that that ward of of Medway that there is this specific problem because of this specific population that therefore we need to take an approach in that area so by making sure that actually everything is researched there's like people in Medway council understand how do they do that in everything they offer and then commission and then with the support of the university and of academics that then going forward you know we can say well we did do our research (laughs) we've done our research and this is why we've decided to make this offer rather than it being sometimes it is just stabbing in the dark isn't it I mean there's lots of conflicting information as well when it comes to the evidence and the health determinants for an area sometimes it can be a bit conflicting it's like oh this body of evidence says that there's a huge drinking problem in this area but this evidence says that um, everyone's uh, fine it'd be really good to try and bring things together and to incorporate the evidence which does exist but also just going forward include that and so my role within the public advisory group will be to act as a sounding board within that and to uh, at the moment we're just looking at actually using plain English and making sure that everything we describe is can be understood by the community so if we're going to somebody in the community and we're saying we'd really like you to uh, give your input on this new leisure centre and if it's supporting your well-being and how that we can explain it in plain English as to why they should bother spending their time doing that and and so that's where we are at the moment because we if we start 
just saying banding around words like hdrc pag <laughs> we know we're already losing so um we want to get it right from the beginning and yeah so that's where we're at at the moment or even like even like social determinants of health like you know what does that <laughs> yeah. mean it's yeah they're just big exactly. words really aren't they exactly Oh, that sounds like really, really good work. And I think they're lucky to have you. Thanks. And hopefully you can be the voice of creativity in this context as well. Yes. Yeah, I was very excited for that. And there's a few people that really support creativity at the university and in the group. Brilliant. Which is just so wonderful. It's really good. But we've got a lot of work to do, which is why I'm so glad you make this podcast, because it's so important that there's more and more people explaining their value of creativity absolutely and so in your bio Natasha you alluded to the fact that you do have personal lived experience of creativity supporting your own health and well-being and some specific health conditions and I wondered if you wanted to talk about those a little bit so that people can understand what you've been doing to support those through creativity yeah, so just through general traumatic things that I've been through, I developed fibromyalgia, which is chronic pain, and it's always there. It was worse when it first started, and then over a couple of years, I went through different types of medication for it, and now I try different types of supplements, and they really seem to help. But it's still there. I'm always in pain. Um, it's just like a moderate level of pain that I can generally deal with. And then if I get ill, then it's worse. If I get migraine, it goes on for days. Obviously, being able to be in control of my own work and be creative really, really helps in terms of that the work I'm delivering is creative generally, unless I'm doing procurement. <laughs> Going back to that. But anyway, don't talk about that. Um, yeah, I really like sewing and I really like painting and um crafting and I've got a 3d printer I like doing working with resin I like making gifts that are you know that have been handmade I love cooking from scratch sometimes (laughs) you can you can fall out of love with that quite easily unfortunately because of the mess but um yeah I yeah I for me that's again like I said at the very beginning is that is that expression and I think obviously giving something creative and handmade is really beautiful as well and I think we could lose that in a much more commercial world but I feel like in people's hearts they know that something that's handmade is just so much more beautiful to give to somebody and so for me that's always up it's upskilling me it's making lovely things I bought some beautiful fabric the other day and one, uh, I, ha- I did have sewing lessons many years ago so I'll sometimes make my own clothes and I just think it's a real joy it's, it's connection with myself and connection with materials and helps me to yes yeah, it's, it's a distraction isn't it which is why I can why it's, it's so supportive for people's well-being but I know I say it's a distraction but obviously scientifically they know that what's actually happening is you're engaging in flow and in the back of your mind you are processing everything and you you know your brain is filing things that you might be struggling with and so therefore it supports your mental health because your brain is working in the background doing the hard work without you just sitting there worrying about it does it 
distract you from the pain as well just focusing on something else sometimes sometimes it's actually painful to do so right it can be painful to sew and to sit in the same position for quite a long time or to paint and hold a paintbrush for a long time that can be painful but it's like the reward is much bigger than that so it's kind of worth the investment for it for the the fruits of the labor so to speak and I think as well sometimes there's like gentler forms of creativity that are unappreciated like listening to music that you really love and even watching films we don't talk about it enough but it can change your life can't it watching a film or a documentary and sometimes I layer it so sometimes I'll be sewing and making and watching something and then that's the watching something is a distraction from the pain that I might feel because of the sewing so yeah it's it's kind of complicated pain is complicated though isn't it yeah I mean obviously I'm sorry that you have this condition and you know the struggle that that brings but it sounds like you're pretty good at self-managing it um, and looking for and finding ways to soothe yourself and and to support yourself you know which is really admirable and you know something that I want to encourage other people to try different things that they maybe haven't thought of and that GP won't tell them about um, that might help them so thank you for sharing that and thank you so much for coming on Creative Health Podcast. It's been really wonderful to talk to you, Natasha, and to hear your story. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, yeah, really great. Very explorative, isn't it? <laughs> like an authentic. I love it. Thank you very much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please rate, review and subscribe. Follow the show on Instagram at creativehealthpod and via the website creative-health.co.uk. This episode was edited by Penny Bell. Creative Health Podcast has been supported through Kent County Council's Arts Investment Fund. Music